Welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. I'm Adam Bells in Georgia. With me is Greg Velasquez in Iowa. We talk about U.S. men's soccer. Hello and welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. Today is a special episode because we're collaborating with the Total Soccer Show. We've recorded one part already and that'll be in the TSS feed, which almost all of you have already seen, I'm sure. And this is the start of the second part of that episode. We're joined by, of course, Taylor Rockwell and Joe Lowry. Thanks for being here, guys. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for thanks for having us. It's exciting to be here. Oh yeah, it's it's an it's been it's been a hot minute, Bell. So I think the last time that I was on the show, we were talking about the U seventeen World Cup. Um, yes, it's been it's it's been a hot minute, my friend. I don't have I yeah. been on the show. I don't think I've been on the show before. I think this might no, be my day. No, you haven't. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so Taylor, embarrassed now you, about Taylor, that. Taylor, now yeah. you have to live up to Greg's performance on TSS. You have to be Ricardo Pepe. There's no other option here. I mean, th- that that's fair, and I'm going to say some outlandish things and see how it goes. Greg didn't do that, but that's my version of being Ricardo Pepe is just saying nonsense, and then uh, hopefully it, it uh, like has traction. And you've already heard his trademark laugh. Greg is here, too. How are you doing, Greg? I'm all right, man. It's awesome to have you guys at ours for a little bit. Yeah. Well, when we left off, we were answering listener questions, and that is exactly where we will pick up. So I'm going to jump right into it. First question from Rob Boley. You get to pick Ricardo Pepe's next club. Where would you want him to go and why? Taylor, why don't you start us off? So I had a, a an answer to this that I thought was sort of outlandish, and that it turns out he has actually been linked with them, and they are actively scouting him. It's AC Milan, because you've got Zlatan, you've got Olivier Giroud there both of whom are presently injured, but also getting a little bit long in the tooth. And I could see him moving there, kind of having some time to bet in with the squad, but then becoming a sort of central attacking option who can get on the end of crosses, but can also hold up play, but can also create. It seems like it would it would work okay. I still feel weird anytime I'm linking an American to a, a major club like that. But given that there's already some interest there, and Fabrizio Romano said I think he's linked with or interest in like 12 different Italian clubs. Uh, I just picked one, and I'm going with Milan. Nice. What about you, what about you Joe? Uh, I've, I've got a pipe dream pick, and I've got a slightly more realistic pick. Borussia Dortmund is the pipe dream pick for me. Erling Holland's going to be gone soon. If Pepe keeps improving, it's not impossible that he can move over in January after the MLS season is done, play some spot minutes until next season, then Holland dips out, goes to Manchester City or wherever he's going to go. And, and Pepe kind of takes over one of those roles. I don't know how likely that is. I'm not saying it's impossible because I do think Pepe is an excellent prospect. He's not all the way there as a player right now. It's also nice, though, that, that Marco Rosa plays with two forwards. He uses more of a 4-4-2 diamond shape. So it's not like Pepe is only going to be able to play up top if, if there's no other nines in there. He might be able to play as part of a front two. So that's my that's my pipe dream pick of sorts. Not that it's impossible. Again, the other one, I'm staying in the Bundesliga. I always navigate towards the Bundesliga for these players for one reason or another. But Hoffenheim is the other one. Uh, they've got a couple of forwards there already who are much more established than Pepe. But it, it could be fun, right? Mid-table Bundesliga team, Chris Richards is already on that squad, playing under Sebastian Honus, who's, I'm guessing, familiar with Pepe because of, of their their mutual connections at Bayern, meaning that Pepe is training there and, and Honus used to be a coach in that system. I don't think they overlapped in terms of actually being at Bayern at the same time for you know, a week or two weeks or whatever that training stint was for Pepe. But I'm guessing that Honus is familiar with Pepe from one avenue or another. I think that could be a pretty decent spot for him to land. I like that. I like the Hoffenheim idea. Greg, do you have one? 
Well, I'll go with uh, I'm going to go with Salzburg. Uh, my biggest thing is that they, wherever he goes, he just plays. It's a good fit for him to play. And at Salzburg, you never really have to worry about your competition that's already there because they're going to be sold in six months anyway. So once he arrives, whoever's ahead of him will be moved on, and it'll be his uh, his spot to shine. And as a great Matt Hartman once said, uh, Salzburg are basically the globetrotters in Austria when they're playing <laughs> against uh, Austrian competition. So he's going to get reps. My mine was going to be pretty similar to that. Maybe not exactly similar, but I was going to say Ajax, uh, just so so he could get a lot of reps in the box, scoring goals, building confidence. Um, the the thing about Dortmund, I'm curious what you guys think about this, but the thing about Dortmund that cons- would concern me is, man, those are such big shoes to fill, like probably literally and figuratively. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, would he pick up Joe in your mind? Does he pick up the Erling Holland celebratory slack where like he maybe almost injures every single one of his teammates anytime a goal is scored? Would he be able to kind of carry on that legacy? I th- I think so. I don't know if Pepe has that spirit in him, you know, the the Holland just yeah. real wild card spirit, but I I like the idea of him bringing the cowboy persona that he sort of developed or maybe that FC Dallas has developed for him. I like the idea of him bringing that to Dortmund and then just trying to choke hold Gio Reyna occasionally because that seems like that's what Erling Holland does. Maybe there could be some similarities there. I'm down for that. I'm down for him also going a different route than going to Bayern Munich, which is where FC Dallas players seem to tend to end up. So maybe that yeah. like Dortmund can get their, their foot in the door there and start a rivalry in terms of who gets more FC Dallas players. That <laughs> makes a lot of sense too. I feel like I feel like Pepe's going to succeed wherever he goes. That's my That's how I feel this Tuesday morning, this Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> Bells, is he, is he already priced out of, of Salzburg and Ajax? Is he already priced out of those sort of uh, feeder clubs? I maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe. All right, so we, we're going to have to live with him taking his shot at the, at the big time. Go straight to AC Milan. Straight away. Yeah. <laughs> All right, second question from DR Udnik. Uh, has the first half at Honduras soured all of you to a back three? Was the problem the formation or players playing out of position? Joe, why don't you take the first crack at this? That half hasn't soured me at all. The execution was really bad, and the the game plan, I think, was pretty bad as well. But that doesn't turn me off of the idea of a back three. I think think the U.S. has personnel that could function in that shape. And, And Greg, in our first conversation over in the TSS feed, was talking about how one of the tactical staples of this team is a front five in possession where usually, well, okay, like like Greg said, it you can get there in a number of different ways. And you can still get there in the back three shape. I think it, it sets up players to succeed in certain moments. So I don't have a problem with the back three at all. For me, there were, there were individual mistakes happening. There were system problems happening I, that I don't necessarily think are directly tied to the static starting formation. I think that's generally true about soccer is the problems are are sometimes rooted in formations in the starting shape, but most often it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, I Greg, think I would, I, would, I would go with that. And I think it, it would be, for like a couple bad games to write off an entire formation and approach, I think would be a bit harsh. I do think it comes down to new personnel being played in different positions. And it could have been Tyler Adams at right back. It could have been Kellen Acosta at right wing back. And then you could have obviously started a more conventional sort of right-sided defender there if you wanted to. But I think when you start to get variations in multiple positions while you're doing a new shape and maybe also trying a couple new sort of 
system things, I think then you're getting mm -hmm. into too much experimentation and it becomes difficult to fix any one thing without having to fix two others. So I do think it came down to sort of being players being played out of position and then also not getting the necessary instruction to be able to make up for that difference. Taylor, do you think the the way they're playing is is poor enough right now that we should at least dispense with it for a little while until we sort of settle down and start to play decent soccer? Not not necessarily, no, because I, I think there are reasons to use a back three. I, I thought they would go back three against Honduras because that did feel like a game where they were going to be more bunkered and more defensive. El Salvador or Joe and I think thought would be a bit more open, a bit more expansive, and try to press a little bit. But against a more defensive team, I think it makes sense to go with the back three because we often see that number six for the U.S., be it Tyler Adams or whoever else, dropping between the two center backs, and then you still have that same basic shape. And I like the idea of starting in that basic shape with a ball-playing center back in the middle to sort of cut out that middleman and allow us to get more readily into attacking situations, theoretically at least. So I, I think I'm okay with them persisting with different formations and different looks. I think, as we talked about in part one, and I'm sure we'll talk about later on in this one, it comes down to the instructions being given to the players and the sort of comfort those players have with those new instructions, but also with the sort of basic like loadout and formation. Greg? I'll, I'll just kind of piggyback on, on everyone else. I don't think the formation is necessarily ruled out. Uh, and, and I think one of the other things that plays into that is we haven't looked so effective in a 4-3-3 that there's like, that we like have to stick to that. You know, like, like oh, man, we got away from what was really working for us to go to this three in the back. Um, you know, no matter what formation we go to, I feel like we are going to be including uh, at least at the moment, like one kind of average player. We don't have, uh, whether it's a 4-3-3, uh, or three in the back, we're going to be trading some mediocrity for for mediocrity somewhere else. So uh, I don't I don't think it's a matter of like, well, we need to run back three to get our best players on the field because I don't necessarily think we have three elite center backs and we need to drop one of our midfielders for them uh, or vice versa. So I'm still open to any number of uh, again combinations of of personnel. Just need to see that they're well prepared to do the job. I'm I'm totally open to the possibility that I'm oversimplifying everything, but uh, but my thought is like we need to we need to win the midfield. We need to we need to have a presence in the midfield that is uh, mobile and physical and and win second balls and sort of exerts control over the game. So then the like having two midfielders in the middle of the pitch uh, troubles me a little bit. But you know I'm I'm curious what you guys think of that. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I think where where I'm more okay with it is that with that back three, as I envision it, it's very aggressively high up the pitch. So either it's at midfield or you have one of the back three stepping even further up than that, and then that allows everybody else to move further forward, and you're kind of putting the opponent under even more pressure. But if you do get, as we did uh, in this last round of qualifying, that back line staying maybe 20, 25, 30 yards behind midfield while the front line is 40 yards from midfield, suddenly we're spread out over 70 to 80 yards, and that's way too big of a space. And I think that's where that midfield, too, is just so easy to exploit. So if you're pressing everybody up and keeping those numbers more condensed, I'm less concerned about it. But I, I take your point, Bells, that if you're not going to have that sort of aggressive high line, and it doesn't seem like they will, then maybe it does make more sense to go with a more conventional 4-3-3 that we've seen from them before because, again, it puts people in more familiar positions and it allows them to then adapt from that same shared level of familiarity. That was Berhalter's point after the game as he thought the, the back line wasn't aggressive enough, aggressive enough and the, he thought the front line was getting a little too stretched. 
that was his explanation for the first half. I actually, I actually have the same sort of concern, even in attack, is that if if you were running sort of just those two, that they might feel a little bit like they're on a tether on a tether to the back line and they can't quite be as adventurous going forward, and that would be an issue for me too. So when we're running the four three three and you have Tyler Adams as a six, my guess is those eights are like we can run wild. We've got Tyler behind us. We can do whatever we want. And I want them to have that mentality. So I do want to have that like freedom from that, that they're feeling to go forward in their movement off the ball, on the ball, whatever. So if the back three would stifle that, then no, you got to bin it. (laughs) Bin it indeed. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's basically whatever allows us to be aggressive in the attack when the situation calls for it. And I think for a lot of cocky half qualification it does then yeah i think i think if it's going to be the 433 that puts numbers in and around the box and gets sort of overloads on one side but still has available available players on the opposite side i think anything that helps us get better attacking chances more consistently and then we take those chances more consistently i am good with that okay let's let's move on to question number three kenneth Sidon asks and this is sort of an off the field uh concern how concerned are you about West McKenney's dad's deleted tweets? Either many players on the team spent this window partying or Weston is playing the victim and throwing players under the bus to do so. Neither of those seems ideal. I guess I'll throw this to you, Greg, even though I know it's going to make you deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> I love the rumor mill uh, in, in global soccer. Um, I, I think it's a bit of a false dilemma. I don't think those are the only two choices. We're, we're really feel, We've entered like the high school soccer scene here. Uh I mean, it's, it's very possible that, you know, Weston McKinney hasn't done any of those things. He he didn't necessarily throw players under the bus, and it doesn't mean that there were a lot of people partying. It could just be that Weston McKinney's dad uh, was frustrated with the situation for his son and, and vented on social media, which I think is not uh, an uncommon thing. And I guess what I'm saying is it makes zero impact on the actual uh, program. Maybe I'm not online enough, but I I don't know. <laughs> I, actually, I'm I'm online enough. I I know that, but I still don't really know what Kenneth is referencing. Can somebody fill me in on the context to these particular tweets? Yeah, uh, John McKenney, Weston's dad, said that uh, he wasn't the only player who broke COVID protocol, and he was you know actually was protecting his teammates. Um, and then he deleted that tweet. So. Mm-hmm. That's, he also, that's he also retweeted somebody asking, uh, when is Greg going to be held accountable? Uh, Greg with four Gs. Uh, <laughs> and why was his jog through downtown Nashville not a violation of COVID policy? So it seems like, yeah, he was, I think, too. It's confusing when we're talking about Greg Berhalter, and then I'm throwing to Greg Velasquez. But, uh, yeah, I <laughs> oh, think to, Welcome to, to, to my <laughs> life. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, honestly, in part one, Bells, at one point you said, like, yeah, I had a conversation with Greg about this. And I was like, oh, you and Berhalter just chatting? Like, you buried the lead on that one, my friend. And then I realized what had happened. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I go with uh, with Mr. Velasquez that this is a parent kind of defending their kid, and it's not great when that pl- that kid is very high profile and has a bunch of people who would then be paying attention to what the the dad is doing on Twitter. But that's what Julian Green's dad has done for a very very long time, and we're not approaching the Adrian Rabio levels of this where it becomes a disruption within the locker room and a disruption amongst the families when they're watching the players. So I think until we reach that point, it is just for me, a dad coming to the defense of his son and you can agree on whether or not that was the right thing to do or whether or not that defense was, was necessary. But I I think I, I understand where it's coming from and I don't think it's, it's that big of a deal. I would much rather just have Weston come out and say, yeah, I made a mistake and I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to be better. And I think he 
he sort of has done that, and I think he will continue to prove that. That might just be my pro Weston McKinney bias showing, though. I've I've long said that the biggest thing standing between the U.S. men's national team and, and France <laughs> is more drama surrounding yep. the national team. So yep. I really just see this whole situation as an absolute win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I to answer the question, I'm not concerned at all about yeah. it, and I I think you know people are people, and this was a this was an emotionally charged situation. I'm sure for Mr. McKenney and you know, cut him some slack, man. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like this cultural puritanism where we like, you know, we sentence people to death over the slightest offense is just. I don't know. When you say cut him some slack, do you mean uh, uh, Weston McKinney's dad, or do you mean Weston McKinney? I mean Weston McKinney's dad. Okay. He 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 made a mistake. I mean he sh- yeah. he he surely thinks of it as a mistake. Otherwise, he wouldn't have deleted the tweets. So like, uh, you know, let people let people. Uh, let, it's okay. It's all right. It's fine. It doesn't it doesn't make any. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It, um, tw- I mean, yeah. Twitter fundamentally doesn't really matter. Uh, and I and I think with that in mind, like I don't have an issue with the the tweets or with what his dad did. I mean, I, it always just goes back to I have an issue with what Weston did and that he did break protocol. And the the Greg Berhalter thing is sort of a mislead because that wasn't in violation of the U.S.'s COVID or the U.S. national team's COVID protocol because they were going with what the local regulations were. But, I, like, Weston certainly did, and I think also broke team protocol at the same time. And so that's the one where McKinney was probably number two on my team sheet. If you were asking me to, like, submit my players I most trust or whatever, I think he would he would have been on there. And, and that was a big moment, I think, for me in, in having sort of come to believe that Weston McKinney can do no wrong. To have him literally do several wrongs and then get sent home was an odd thing to have happen in an already confusing window. It was not a, a helpful or useful thing aside from making us seem more like France, which I guess is sort of useful. Yeah. You know what? Chris Russell, AKA walkie made those videos about how helpful West McKinney is. And then I had him, I made a little podcast with him and asked him how, how helpful do you think Weston is now? And he says, not helpful, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, I guess I, I feel like, yeah, he, yeah. There's no excusing it. There's no excusing like the the breaking of the rules, but like this this idea that this is an unforgivable thing is, is hard for me to get my head around. And and um, except that you know there's a, sort of the violation of trust. It's been reported that he he was making a big making a big thing about team accountability and responsibility, and then promptly went out and broke the rules. But man, I hope he's back in the next window and we can sort of put this whole thing behind us. I know this is going to be ridiculous, but it has, like, we also maybe have the makings of a bad romantic comedy here. Because there is a world in which, like, maybe he broke protocol because this was this was the one true love. This was the person he's meant to be with. And maybe if Wes McKinney ends up marrying the person who he broke protocol, protocol, COVID protocol for, then it becomes a Hallmark movie. And especially if we win the World Cup, it makes even more sense. So I feel like we can spin this in a certain way. It just depends on what the behavior was. If it was maybe... Less of a romantic uh, storyline and more of a, hey, I'm going to go out for a fun evening and then I'll be back. Maybe that doesn't work quite so well. I'm only cool right. with that rom-com if we all get invites to the wedding. That, that is yeah. really the, the biggest thing that's holding me back from feeling good about that particular Yeah, idea. I mean, that, that, that goes without saying. That is, okay. that is guaranteed part of it, and we also get producer credits. Sweet. I, do, I do really appreciate that you brought up that possibility, Taylor, because I feel like that's something that would never come up on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no? Just I am so angry at Kenneth Seiden right now for asking this question. <laughs> 
Who should play Weston? Should Let's talk about this for a minute. Because the answer is Michael B. Jordan, but we can talk about it more if we want to. It's up to you all. No, the answer is Weston McKinney. He's, That's probably fair. He's ready for the big screen, <laughs> I think, at least. Eric Cantona played himself. Let's get Weston playing himself and see how it goes. I like that. Let's move to the next question. Number four. <laughs> Going to roll two questions together here. Neil asks, do you guys think Matthew Hoppy deserves a shot at the nine with the first team? And then USMNT Talk asked... With Sardis healthy and Hoppy's club situation settled, who gets left off, or does Burhalter take a bigger roster like he should have for the first window? Uh, Greg, why don't you take it first? <laughs> uh, so I think somebody's getting left off here. I don't think there's. I mean, if we're talking about uh, Pepe, Zardes, P. Fox, Sargent, and Hoppy, I my guess is one of those guys gets left off. You could throw them all in camp, but I guess what I'm thinking is, why would you? Like, you there's no there's no situation that's going to require all. Four, five of those guys to play minutes. So at some point, a coach just has to make a decision and say, "I rate this guy ahead of this guy," or "I this this particular situation I want to have covered by this player, and this situation calls for this player." So that those are the two I'm bringing, and this guy just is behind right now. Uh, I think Klinsman actually used to always say that. Just others uh, are ahead of him. There are other options yeah. ahead of him. <laughs> so at some point, like a coach has to make that call, and so. I, I wouldn't I don't think too many of the guys who would get left out would have much argument. So if Sargent gets left off, he's gonna have to say, Yeah, I didn't take my chances. Maybe I didn't have the best conditions to, to excel, but I didn't make the most of whatever I had and that's just the way it goes. Joe? I also think somebody's gonna get left off. I, I don't think I really don't necessarily have Hoppy in the nine depth chart right now from Berhalter's perspective. Not that we couldn't see him play there. I'd actually be genuinely interested to see him play there. But I think you can get away with putting Hoppy on the winger depth chart and and still bringing a bigger roster. Uh, And so maybe you don't have to cut as many guys from this particular conversation. But either way, I agree with Greg. I think one of the out-and-out nines is going to be cut, and it's not going to be Pepe, right? It's not going to be Zardes either, I would wager. So it seems to me that it's either going to be Jordan Pifak or Josh Sargent. For me, it's, it's Josh Sargent who's probably not making that squad because then you take three nines, and if Tim Weah is healthy and if Matthew Hoppy is called in, then you have two other guys who can deputize at that spot pretty confidently. And then after that, it's it's an issue. But I, I think there's plenty of players that can play that spot without bringing four out-and-out nines, and, and at that point, somebody's going to have to stay home. I, I feel like Hoppy is a player that I know a lot about and simultaneously feel like I know nothing about because... The, the times I've seen him look the best, I think for club or country, was when he was playing as that left winger. But basically, that was sort of a name only and for the most part was dropping into like the center of midfield to create uh, mismatches there. But then also playing further forward as almost a second striker. Like I liked that combination of things. What I get confused by is that's not really what I think Pulisic does in that same role or even Reyna does in that same role. And then certainly not what Conrad De La Fuente or Tim Weah would be offering. So I think... like. If you put Hoppy on the wing, he's doing a different job than the other players who are playing there, at least in my mind. But then also, I don't feel like we've seen him in the number nine, number nine spot, at least for the U.S., or at least in enough of a way that makes me think, like, yeah, that's a guy who should bump other people out of the pecking order. But I also feel like there are reasons for him to be put in there because he does have that combativeness. He does have that energy and just belief. And I think that is an important part of what Berhalter wants to see in this team and then has proven he can perform at that level just in a different spot. So basically I'm saying there are reasons for him to be included in the squad. I don't know in what position and I don't know in terms of depth where he would be. What do you all think is his best position for the U.S.? 
See, this is my point. <laughs> I don't. Well, <laughs> that silence tells me things. I don't think we can say for sure right now, right? Like we've only seen him really in one spot with the U.S. men's national team. We've seen him at other spots for his clubs, but I don't. I at least am not ready to answer that question yet because we haven't seen him at the nine. I thought he did a lot of things well on the wing, and I, I thought there were also some some pretty sizable deficiencies in what he was doing and, and being a little bit careless with the ball in moments. But I don't. I don't know that we have an answer to that question just yet, Taylor. I'll, I'll say I have no reason to think that he can't challenge or even the starting number nine spot. Again, I, I keep talking about how fickle that position is. Uh, and, you know, when he played on the wing in the Gold Cup, it was a lot because of how that roster was built, and we didn't have a lot of wingers to use. So he was he was making us better by playing on the wing than using other options. And the other thing to remember is that was supposed to be sort of the Daryl DK uh, show, getting his real... Uh, audition as the number nine and that didn't go as well as expected so it, it's it's totally possible that hoppy could come in and be like a peppy level striker for us uh or have that kind of a performance and we'd all be really excited and be like oh we now have our our number nines for the next 10 years so my i guess i'm just saying by the end of this window we will have our number nine sorted out through 2026 <laughs> at least <laughs> yeah um i agree with you joe that we should that Sargent's the one who should be dropped because somebody does have to be dropped. Yeah. And, um, I mean, can, can I push back real yeah. quick? Can I just push? So the only, the only thing I'm, I'm worried about with the idea of just dropping Sergeant right away is, uh, we have two home games in this window. And I think it's very possible that we are going to have more of these games where we have 70% of the possession and it's going to be about breaking teams down. And I'm just wondering what you guys feel about out of all the strikers, uh, who's going to be the best one for breaking a team down who's sitting in a bunker? Is it going to be Zardes or Pifak? Uh I'm not saying Pepe can't do it, but do we have reason to believe that Zardes or Pifak would both be ahead of Sargent in that scenario? I don't I don't think we have reason to believe that. I don't know that we know for sure. I think Jossie Zardes gets a lot of undeserved flack, and I think his ability to drop in and link has improved. I don't know that it's as good as Josh Sargent's ability to do that. I will say the thing that Berhalter has brought up before after Josh Sargent has gotten a start in in a game that fits roughly fits the description that you're talking about, Greg, where the U.S. has a lot of the possession, is he still talks about Sargent needing to be more active in the penalty box, right? And so it is it is a trade-off to an extent. If your nine's always dropping into midfield, they're not going to be as available in the penalty box, most likely. But for me, even if it means sacrificing some slight advantage in breaking a team down in possession, I probably, based off, based off of what we've seen from Sargent really for his whole U.S. Men's National Team career, I'd still prefer someone like Pepe who's going to be more active inside the 18 that's that's going to be able to provide that last little push, which at times is the hardest one to get in and actually put the ball in the back of the net. I, that's the thing for me is, yeah, Sargent is probably a little better at linking up, but he gets lost on his way to the penalty area. so Or he gets a little brothered um, in the penalty area. And I'm, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of seeing that. I want, uh, he, he, I want him to stay in England and think about I think there's yeah. also I agree and I think there's also an argument that like with all that said he does sort of keep getting called in aside from maybe when there were injuries but other than that I think of him as as a more or less ever present fixture and I wonder if that is also a problem that he maybe he needs that moment of getting dropped to be like all right I really got to like make some decisions here figure some things out and just like I think you can use that check sometimes to know that you need to like pick yourself up but also if it means he stays 
with Norwich and has more training and is able to get maybe more into the manager's thoughts, that's not the worst thing either. So I think there's a silver lining if he were to be left off. Not saying he necessarily will be, but uh, it wouldn't be the disaster that maybe it, it would have been to me a couple of years ago when I felt like Josh Sargent was the truth and going to be winning the World Cup back-to-back in 2022 and 2026. I, I- and I guess we should keep in mind we always have Jesus Ferrer to be our possession forward, uh, so we can expect that call up, uh, or at least a discussion around it. Yeah, I mean, I would like, I wouldn't mind seeing Ferrer called up at all, maybe even as a tucked in winger. I, I think what ta- what you said, Taylor, is like maybe the that's the that's the thing that pushes sar- dropping Sergeant over the edge to being like a positive for me because I am sort of agnostic about the differences between those three guys, Pifak, Zardes, and Sergeant. Like none of them, none of them is clearly yeah. gonna be more effective than the others. So hey, let's let Sergeant have a have have a chance to to have that check, like you said, and and think about yep. what he's doing, and and maybe you know get some starts at, as the nine for for North City in their uh, relegation campaign. Yeah, I mean they're all they're all like. Meat like mediocre to okay pizza. It's like it's it's good. It's it's pizza. It can never be that bad. Like that's kind of how it feels. It's like yeah yeah, it's Hoppy. It's Sergeant. Yeah, it's Artis. Whatever. Sure, let's go for it. Let's see what happens. Yeah, and then at least with Peppy, we have this feeling that it's 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 a uh, it's pretty good pizza. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's pizza with bite. It's got a lot of uh, seasoning to it. I'm into it. Yeah. Well, the first, the first, the first time I had it, it was good, but I'd been drinking quite a bit, so I don't know if it's going to hold up. <laughs> that was two a.m. Like it's always going to be amazing. <laughs> two a.m. Let's see how it tastes in the cold light of day. There, there. Um, number five, question number five. Samuel Garcia asks, "How do y'all see Panama remaining on the UK's red list, influencing the roster selection for October?" Break out your spreadsheets, gentlemen. <laughs> Well, first, can somebody just yeah. outline real quick uh, who would potentially be affected by that? Because it shouldn't have any effect on, say, Miles Robinson. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think I can do that. So Christian Pulisic, if, if healthy, Zach Steffen, uh, Ethan Horvath, Josh Sargent, Tim Ream, Anthony Robinson. Am I missing any other English-based guys, folks? You got Dwayne Holmes he, and yeah. Huddersfield. <laughs> Definitely. And then you have... Definitely. <laughs> Uh, Dwayne, Dwayne Octavius Holmes. Right, let's, right. Let's let's show him the respect he deserves. Doh, yeah, yes, mm-hmm. he'll be there for sure. So, so that's the list of players that, at least the one that I got, that won't, as of now, unless something changes, be able to travel to Panama. Is everybody with me on that, or my way off? I think that's right. Okay. No, that sounds Coolio. right. What is COVID? <laughs> well, <laughs> that it's is really answer. it's really only the the goalkeepers. I mean, it, it'd be, it's fine for Pulisic not to make the trip to Panama, in my opinion. Um, and then it's really only the goalkeeper. We're going to have to bring some extra goalkeepers, right, to the on the roster so that we have enough, unless we want Christian Roldan to be the third goalkeeper. <laughs> so you, or or you just do you call? Do you just leave them home altogether, or do you think like that'd be too much to not bring Horvath and Stefan? You think you bring one of them and then just bring Sean Johnson? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the main thing. I don't. I, I feel like we're going to see Stefan in any camp where he's available, right? I mean, he's he's Berhalter's guy in a lot of ways. But we just need to have uh, a non-Horvath and Stefan goalkeeper so we don't just travel down to Panama with one, you know? You yeah. know what I'm saying? I'm, I mean, I'm kind of into the Christian Roldan as our backup goalkeeper. His MLS numbers are great, guys. His his numbers over at ASA are, are just top tier, as far as I can recall. Oh, maybe that's Alex Roldan. Darn, I can't remember. 
it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I, I, the the goalkeeper overriding issue here, I think, or, or governing thing here is Matt Turner starting all three games, right? Stefan just just finally got back to playing with City. Wow. He's in the lineup today, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, for their cup match midweek. Um, but do, does anyone think that they're going to rotate, or do you think Turner's getting all three games? It's a really interesting question because I, I do think if they were going to rotate, it would be Stefan in the second game, Turner in the first, and then we see what happens in the third. But if it's Stefan being unable to travel to Panama, if you are going to rotate, that means he starts the first one, but that feels like it would be a disservice to Matt Turner. So maybe it ends up as Stefan being in camp, but he plays that final game. Maybe he doesn't play at all, but it's more, I definitely thought there would be rotation for sure. And now I'm realizing with that red list limitation, I I don't know how much there will be. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you really need to rotate, especially with this this Panama situation right in the middle of this three-game window. I think taking the job from Matt Turner right now would be incredibly harsh. I think he's earned that spot over the summer and, and now through the first window where I thought he was one of the U.S.'s better players. I don't, I don't see him losing that job anytime soon, to be honest. Yeah, he, he single-handedly won us the Gold Cup. Come on. <laughs> he, he did use both hands, Bells, just to, to yeah, <laughs> and, and I would I would just even say, <laughs> sorry, that wasn't that funny. That took me a minute. It was pretty funny. It got me. It got me. I I don't even frame it as being like harsh on Turner. Like I see those things as being too. It's it's a risk. You're taking a risk if if you're putting on a, a keeper who's less likely to to keep the ball out of the net. So uh, I see it as like it's an unnecessary risk in a moment where we really need to be uh, optimizing our chances of of points. Giving uh, Stefan a start would it be? cute to do that <laughs> for me yes it definitely would be but i've been i've sort of been on banging that drum for a while now uh yeah i don't know bells you haven't you haven't weighed in yet you're kind of being coy here wait, wait on it wait in on what specifically yeah so you can weigh in on the goalkeeper situation or you can also weigh in on any of the other i guess you said uh, pool six yeah no i think I'm, I, I'm off i want turner to start all the games i agree with you it's a risk it's a risk to to do otherwise um i Can would I, be i'll almost be more comfortable with horvath than than stefan just based on shot stopping go ahead Can, i'm gonna show my ignorance here like and and just be honest and say like i don't even know what ended up happening last time with south america and the countries that were on the red list because as I understand, a lot of the Premier League players weren't allowed to go, but then some did, but maybe they didn't. I don't really know how it works. So is the issue that you can't travel there and then immediately return to England? Do you have to quarantine for a while and that's the issue? Or can you just not go there at all if you want to then go back to England? I think it was the middle option, the one okay. where you have to quarantine when you get back to England, and that was going to affect whether players could play for their clubs. But I don't. I didn't follow up on it either. I was outraged, and then I forgot about it. So <laughs> Yeah, that's... that's, that's that's about my, my standard day. I'm with you on that. So then but, it would be then acceptable for those players to be called in. They play the first game. Then they don't travel to Panama. And then they're there for the third game. And then they return home, barring injury or sort right. of any unforeseen circumstances. So that would be one way of doing it, which then means maybe we have a larger squad called in for that one. W- would you all be on board for that? I wouldn't object at all. Hey, Taylor, actually, just running it out like that, like you laid it out, uh, it's it's also very possible Man City could just be like, no, Stefan, you're fine. Go ahead and go to Panama. We'll be you can quarantine. We're not gonna we're not oh, gonna be too yeah, bothered that's about true. it. <laughs> Interesting. All right, so there we go. It's fine. It's all solved then. Stefan can play against Panama. I'm sure that's what he wanted to to go to a red list country and then have to quarantine while being maybe the backup to Matt Turner slash very much likely the backup to Matt Turner. That's perfect for him. I mean, the shortness of the list that Joe 
uh, read out there makes me think that you know the bigger issue for for bringing a big roster is just the the possibility for fatigue and injury than the um, than you know the UK red list situation. Oh. Should we just turn this into a roster size question then? Sure. Over, overall, ignoring sort of the Panama. Sure. Yeah. Uh, implications. Yeah, I'm thinking 30 players yep. minimum. I had 28 to 30. Yeah, that's about where I am. And it was it was 26 last time, right? It was 26. I'm and at 30. Then, I'm and at then, 30 based on that. And Tim Weah got injured, and, I, and he was not replaced to my recollection. And then eventually Jackson Ewell came in after some other injuries. But it started out at 26 and then dropped to 25. And I think we saw why having a bigger squad last time around would have been helpful. And again, or maybe I said this in part one. I can't remember now what I've been saying. But I sympathize with Greg Peralta for some of the challenges in terms of roster call-ups for the September window. Because you have players like Reggie Cannon who aren't fit and they have weird club situations. You have Matthew Hoppy and Chris Richards moving from one club to another club. And, and ultimately for their careers, you don't really want to mess with those timelines and by, by taking them out of that situation and bringing them to the national team setup. But now in October, theoretically, assuming players get healthy again, you should have a much bigger pool of available players that you can bring in. And I see no reason why you wouldn't bring at least a few more guys and get close to 30. The only challenge I can see with that is the bigger the squad is, the harder it is to train. And I don't, I've never led a professional training session before. I know everyone's so shocked by that. So I don't know how hard that is to do with four or five more guys than who came in last time. I, it can't be that difficult, but maybe that has a part to play here as well. Who knows? So then it would be Turner, Stefan, Johnson Horvath, and then it's Turner and Johnson going to Panama potentially, unless Man City don't mind Zach Steffen going. Is that is that sort of how we're seeing it? Wouldn't that be kind of offensive to Stefan if Man City was like, go, nah, you can go, go ahead. Nah, do, you think, do you think? It's fine. I mean, he's playing. I'm assuming he's playing. Are they playing the League Cup today? I, I think he, it's either today yeah, or tomorrow. He's, he's in the lineup. He's Are we started. convinced that Pep knows who Zach Stefan is? That might maybe that's where we oh, should have started man. with this whole thing. Cold. He definitely uh, doesn't just, spell his just name, to right? say that. It's like Z A C H Z A C K. I never get it right. I'm just gonna squiggle and hope he doesn't notice. There, there definitely are more options for this camp in particular because of the the extra month now that the European players, especially the ones who played in Gold Cup or the ones who are transferring. Uh, have gotten under their belt. So I definitely think that Burhalter could comfortably call a larger camp. Like, I don't think he was dead set on 26 in September. Uh, and then was just like, that's what we got to hold it to. And I want six center backs and I want five center mids. And now I'm going to fill those spots. Uh, I'm sure, it, or at least I think it was more like he was just going position group by position group and picking guys until he ran out of guys he trusted who were available because of their club situations. Uh, and so now you add, I, I think my, by my count, I've got like 14 or 15 extra players uh, who who were probably not available in September, who are available in October. So I would very much expect a, a little bit of a thicker roster. That would Bells, be great. If you don't mind me, like I wanted to ask something because it was, it was brought up a little bit ago. It's going to sound like I'm inviting uh, hostile or joking responses. I'm not. I'm genuinely asking this. Does anyone have an explanation for why Jackson Ewell was brought in, why he was the replacement player, and he doesn't end up playing? I'm assuming the idea is, like, if they need somebody to sit deep and play long balls or he has familiarity with the team and there's some level of chemistry there. But aside from that, it's not one that made sense. I know you all talked about that a little bit, uh, but I'm not sure if you all had any uh, suggestions or solutions either. But it's one that continues to... Make me scratch my head a little bit. I can't explain it. Can anyone else? I think I think we landed on he was the least likely player to break curfew, <laughs> and that's what 
that was the deciding factor. He said, out of everyone we had, uh, it's they needed a domestic guy, right? So they again, it's a corner that we backed ourselves into. So at that point, you need someone who's domestic, who's not going to be flying eight time zones over, uh, and you need somebody who's who's been there before. So you're not trying to re-explain everything, uh, and that that's sort of who we landed on uh, for a center midfielder. I don't I don't know that. I mean, you know, I don't, I just don't know that there was anyone else who. Who, who do we have that would have fit the bill besides besides you all, given those yeah. conditions that we've sort of built? I around? guess it would probably have been Eric Williamson if he were fit, right? Yeah. Is that the consensus he'd, opinion? He'd just been injured, right? Like right. like very recently. So it's hard. There, there weren't a lot yeah. of guys that could have come in. And, and like you're saying, Greg, part of that is because it, it, that, that situation likely wouldn't have occurred if the roster, if the initial roster had been larger. And so you, you bring Yule in, and that allows you to have a little bit more cover in central midfield so you can shift Adams or Acosta wide, which is what ended up happening with Tyler Adams for that last game. So there is there is some logic there, but it wasn't like Jackson was going to come in and start balling, likely, at least. I, I never even thought of that, Joe. I mean, we could have just gained a central midfielder by bringing in another right, right exactly. back. And so keeping Tyler Adams there. Uh, and not have, but any of it. In any event, I I don't expect you. Does anyone expect you all to be on this October list, even if we expand no. it? I don't. My my head so hurts I, from I, the right back suggestion. <laughs> that didn't really occur to me, and now I'm more frustrated than I was. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> but we have. I mean, you think about the midfield options now. After after injuries and shenanigans, we've got McKenny back, presumably <laughs> uh, Musa back, uh, Buzio sort of settled in. So we have all these more experienced players who can experience with the national team who can kind of come in and fill those spots. You know, Greg, the, Greg, the more you disparage this idea that Weston McKinney broke COVID protocol for love, the less likely I am to give you an executive <laughs> producer credit. You're now an associate producer credit until you get on board. And Jackson Ewell would never, ever be the subject of a romantic comedy for those reasons. I'm just saying. <laughs> That's fair. Jackson Ewell would definitely be more the the best You're right. friend. He definitely than, is. Uh, the, He's the guy that, that that is playing basketball opposite Weston McKinney while they talk about their love lives. Yeah, that makes sense. Offering very good advice. Of course, of course. Um, let's go to the next question. Let's sure. try to handle this one quickly. Uh, number six, Ian asks, "Do you think Eunice Musa will get a lot of minutes this window?" He's the, uh, Ian is concerned that Greg doesn't Greg uh, Burhalter doesn't rate him after he did not play at Nations League. Joe, why don't you punch in on that one? I desperately desire Eunice Musa to play a lot this window. I also share Ian's concern that Greg Berhalter doesn't rate him. I does anybody know what went on in Nations League? Like why I don't understand why Eunice Musa didn't get on the field and I know he's still working his way into the program. He hadn't had a lot of, of camps before that. But Eunice Musa, like we all talked about in part one, is a player that we all rate. And, and have in our chosen three and Greg's, I guess, off on the side because he's, he's doing his permutations over there. But Yunus Musa is a good player, it, to me at least, and Peralta Glee has to rate him on some level. But I do share Ian's concern that he won't factor in as much as I want him to. There's, I'll just jump in and say there's a theory that the reason, I'm not saying it's true, but there's a theory that the reason he didn't play in Nations League is because Berhalter was allowing him to have some time to breathe and not... Mm-hmm get capped tied at the age of 18 um and have the whole summer to you know not feel like he was pressured into it and then come in guns blazing in the fall and then of course he was hurt for the september window so i, I, I buy into that i do because I, I think the one thing that we've kind of heard consistently about burhalter since he's taken over is that he's he is good at managing both the individuals and the squad as a whole and i think 
that's why we've gotten the dual national commitments we have, and it's why I think mo a lot of people have stayed on board. And even somebody like Kellen Acosta, who seems surplus to requirements when he's first takes over as manager, is now a key part of the squad. And I have him like in my top 20 players who'd be going to the World Cup, and that's not, again, a thing that I really expected to be the case. And so I think Berhalter is very good at sort of taking these things into consideration, taking the playing experiences or lack of playing experience into consideration and I think probably does have that level of communication I think there's probably also an element of like just uh, like unpredictability is that the word underrated unpredictableness yeah. there we go unpredictability to Yunus Musa that maybe doesn't fit with what Berhalter wants as his plan a whereas somebody like Sebastian Legette has been there knows exactly what Berhalter wants or theoretically knows exactly what Berhalter wants a player in that role to do and Musa maybe is seen as more of an impact player or a player who can change up the tempo or the vibe. Uh, so I go with Joe. That I would I would love to see Yunus Musa start. I do not think he will start that first game at the very least. Okay. I think the other the other variable here is Musa is again still coming back from injury. He hasn't started a game for Valencia yet. And looked. Uh, he came in yeah. early. Yeah. <laughs> he came in early because of an injury, so he was a unplanned early substitution over the weekend. Uh, and it doesn't appear to be 75 minutes fit. Uh, but I've, I really hope that he is uh, a, like a 60-minute sub in all three games because I do think he has the ability to control matches uh, in a way that a lot of our other midfielders don't, um, certainly as we get down the rotation depth chart. So I'm, I'm really hoping that he, uh, that he has a big part to play. I'm also not going to be shocked if he isn't called at all for yep. some reason because I just feel like nothing shocks me anymore with some of these uh, roster decisions. All right. I got a really good question. I think from Bob Morocco, uh, who we all know and love, how do each of, how do each of you attempt to evaluate and attribute individual versus system based errors? Taylor. Uh, my answer, not surprisingly is not going to be succinct. So if somebody has a succinct one, I welcome them to go first. Otherwise I will tell you my sort of broad answer to this question. Okay, I'm ready sorry. for the sprawly one. Let me, sorry, let me let me jump in real quick. <laughs> I I don't know that all errors have to be one or the other. I, that's just what I wanted to preface this with. Is is mm -hmm. if they're not simultaneous errors, then there's one that could be very closely caused by another, and it does get murky. So okay, that that's just what I wanted to slide in before we get into this whole conversation. I'm not sure it has mm -hmm. to be one or the other all the time, like system versus individual. Okay, I'm done. Go ahead, Taylor. Yeah, I think th that's definitely a fair distinction. And then the thing that I am very mindful of is how often first view when you're watching it live is based on emotion and is oftentimes, for me at least, based on preconception of what a player can do. And I think we've all experienced that probably when like, I would spotlight, oh, this guy did this really, really well, and then I would go to Twitter and see two clips of that player in the same game doing that same thing, only not doing it well. And, and, I, and I'm always wary of sort of highlighting something in a positive or negative way and then having that be more so like just happened to be what I was looking at in that moment or happened to be my like awareness of, oh, this guy isn't always great. Josh Stars is an example that watching him at club level for Werder Bremen, I remember being frustrated by his lack of closing down. And that was a thing we saw in World Cup qualifying. And I spotlighted that and some people took issue with it. And so that's where I'm always mindful of. Is that bias or is that a thing that I'm ob observing and then can kind of have draw conclusions from. And so for me, it's about watching it that second time and removing some of that, like, here's what I thought happened in the emotion of the moment to look at it again and see, is a thing happening consistently? Is it a pattern or is it an outlier? And if a player sort of constantly looks confused and is always looking around, or honestly, if it's Tyler Adams having to 
like have words with players on a consistent basis, to me that is the system sort of letting the team down. And if it's a player being out of position always, and it's little things like Greg Berhalter throwing his hands up in the air. You'll see that on the sideline. You'll see him aggressively coaching or calling somebody over. And to me, that is the system not working or the individual not understanding the system. And I think to his credit, Berhalter will often not throw people under the bus and not overtly criticize, but I think will point out when things weren't going the way he wanted them to or when like things weren't being executed as well as he would have liked. And so I think it's a combination, long, or like, sh- long answer short, it's rewatching the game but trying to see if, if a thing I noticed once happened multiple times and if so, why, but then also incorporating post-match quotes from the players and Greg Berhalter to understand what they were trying to do or what they felt like was a problem, and then seeing if that vibes with what I observed. Oh, great answer. Greg? So my, my sprawly version of it is, uh, like, when you're watching the game and you're watching, you know, whichever player you got your, your focus on at the moment, are they being asked to do something that you know that they can do? Uh, and, and so that's sort of where it goes into is whatever, whatever they're doing, should we expect them to be able to do it given their player profile? And if the answer is yes, and they're failing, then it's like, all right, this, this player, uh, is short of the ability, like doesn't have the ability to do it. If this is supposed to be their strength and they're being put in a position to use their strength and they can't do it, then that's an individual limitation and we are going to have to find another way around. Um, but if you're watching players and it looks like they're being asked to do something that they can't do or there's no reason to think that they're good at doing those things, uh, then it becomes like a system issue. Um, and then the other, the other part of that is if everyone on the field looks like they're playing well below what their individual strengths and abilities are, then I think it's pretty easy to say that that's a system issue as well. And, and you would say that that has been the case a lot of the time with the U.S. with the USMNT. A lot of the time, yeah, I, I definitely would. Uh, something I'll point out, too, because uh, I talked about it in the first part of the show over over at TSS's place. Um, you know, I know Bob Morocco, who asked this question, pointed out a lot of the uh, issues in the El Salvador game where players sort of just missing passes. Like, oh, again, a wide-open player that they just miss. And I do think that's an individual breakdown. But I, like I kind of also said in that one, sometimes that's a symptom of not fully understanding the system, not fully understanding what you're trying to accomplish with these what we should be considered sort of simple actions to execute. Um, and so when that's happening over and over again, then I, I do start to say, all right, do these guys understand why you're asking them to do the, these, these things? Or are they sort of always trying to solve the whole problem all at once because they, they haven't been well prepared uh, with the mindset of what you're trying to actually accomplish as a team? I like how you said over at the TSS place, because many of you may not realize it, but we recorded the first half of the episode in Richmond. Yeah, it was really uh, nice of you all to fly in. And then I didn't expect that. the second half of the episode in Des Moines. So. <laughs> I've always Joe, wanted to go to Des Moines. <laughs> Dream smaller. I hear, Joe, have, I hear they have good schools in Des Moines. I don't know if I heard that. But. <laughs> Joe, Joe, can you take a crack at this one? I would love to, uh, Bells. Thank you. I think... With my, my uh, disclaimer that I already set out up front, setting that aside, um, I think a big way that I try to figure out system errors, at least, is to look at what patterns are, are playing out on the field. Not necessarily in terms of attacking movement or off-ball runs or you know patterns in the final third to create goals, but what, what are trends that we're seeing on the field? And the Canada game really does stick out in my mind in this way. 
the Canada game, the U.S. went long over and over and over again. And after the game, to tie into what Taylor said, Berhalter talked about those long diagonals and how they weren't moving the ball fast enough and how they didn't really have a lot of success with those diagonals. That's a heavy paraphrase, but that's something to the effect of what he said. In, in that particular case, I think it's fair to attribute a lot of the mistakes that the U.S. had in possession, a lot of the, the weak and pretty tame possession play, to the system and to the tactical instructions that were given to them because it wasn't just John Brooks trying to hit those balls. It was John Brooks and Tyler Adams trying to hit those balls and players not really moving in between the lines to such an extent that it really did point all of the arrows towards the pregame tactical instructions. So in those cases, I'm much more inclined to attribute those errors to the instructions into the system and to the, to the manager rather than there's just one play that sticks out in my mind. It's John Brooks on the ball with a chance to split the lines and play it to Christian Pulisic, who's tucked inside in midfield against Canada in the first five minutes of that game, I believe. And Brooks doesn't really look for him and just plays it long. And it's I, I do think a share of the blame should go to John Brooks because these aren't robots. These are thinking players that know or, or should be able to determine when the time to break the instructions are. But a heavy chunk of that that blame in the moment has to go to the instructions that they were given. So that's that's at least one thing that I'll do to try and figure out, okay, where does the blame lie? Does it lie with the individual player in that individual moment, or does it lie with the instructions and the system that they've been placed in? It's I think I think it's a really for me at least it's a really hard thing to distinguish between um, you know like like Taylor said you gotta you have to go back and watch carefully and as anybody who knows anybody who listens to this podcast knows I generally defer to Greg on stuff like this so um, that's kind of where I'm coming from but I do think it's a game it's it's a game of rhythm you know so if everybody if everybody isn't locked into what the plan is and they're not to use a Joe Lowry phrase given a platform to express themselves, you know, freely, then, you know, things sort of compound and things start to get look worse and worse. And, uh, and then you have like individual errors that are sort of the, they're the result of the system in an indirect way. Like the system's not working. So things just start to get worse. So, um, yeah, I don't have any better answers than you guys, except that I, one thing that makes it easy for me is a very simple thing. The further away from the center of the field, uh, something is the easier for, it is for me to at least figure out in my mind my own mind whether it's an individual or system error because there's just fewer variables you know hmm. yeah and I think a, a final thing for me then is that I, I think that like like fundamentally for me there has to be an idea that like I might be wrong and I probably am wrong and so because I, I can have these ideas about what's happening and so like if there's a game when the U.S. is being too direct or being too vertical if it happens over and over and over again my I forget which game it was when that was happening. Maybe it was the Canada game uh, that Joe mentioned. That like, I assumed that was they had this game plan for like Canada will be aggressive, so we can hit them. Uh, like we can basically catch them on the counter. We can hit them over the top, and we have like the speed on the flanks to capitalize. And then maybe that ball was just being hit too soon, or they were too direct. They were too readily looking for that. But then to hear Burhalter come out afterwards and say, "Yeah, we were doing that too often. We were trying to be too direct." To me. That then is where it gets confusing because that's him basically saying that wasn't the game plan, but that's what we kept looking at. And that is weirdly a problem with the system, but also a problem with the coach, that if the team is sort of doing a thing over and over again that they've been told not to do or not been asked to do, it it makes me 
confused, and so I tend to stick with, like, ah, it's probably individuals, it's also probably partially the system, but then if I see it again, or if I don't see it again, I think there has to be a willingness to say, like, okay, it seems like they changed that, or maybe I had it wrong, and, and that is, I think, a big part of what, what we try to do, at least, and I'm guessing you all do as well, is sort of own when you got a thing wrong, because if you stick to a position as it increasingly seems untenable, then you're just arguing because you don't want to be wrong, versus trying to understand what's actually happening. Yeah. Let's do let's do one more question and and then wrap this thing up. Um, this is from Farm Nice. I'm curious to get priors from you guys, all four of you, on where the U.S. men's national team would rank globally if Pep or Klopp or pick your favorite coach was the coach instead of Greg Berhalter. I feel like there's a sense in your collective criticism that we should be dominating the region and challenging for World Cup semis with these players, and it's only Berhalter holding us back. When, in my opinion, we have a mid-20s type global ranking level of talent, global ranking level of talent. Joe, you want to bite that one off first? Yeah, I'll fight back a little bit with Farm Nice. I'll, I'll be nice just as Farm Nice is nice in his name. I don't, I don't think I've ever gone nearly as far to say with the talent level we have, the U.S. men's national team should be competing for a World Cup semifinal. That's, to me, that's completely unrealistic. So I, I don't really know exactly where that part is coming from. I will say, I, I do think it's fair to say that Greg Berhalter is holding us back right now, right? We've been talking about system errors, and we've been talking about, we, we have talked about over the course of these two shows, some lineup problems, and, and Greg mentioned players not being put, put in positions to succeed. Those are all things that you can trace back pretty easily to Greg Berhalter. So I, I don't think it's unrealistic to say that this team would be performing at a higher level and would be looking more tactically coherent on the field if... Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp or Thomas Tuchel, whoever, the coaches at the top of their game, were coaching this group. I think that would help the team. I think coaching is a really important part of soccer, and having a solid tactical foundation is hugely important. So for me, I think the U.S. has better than mid-20s probably type global talent. I don't think they're in the top five or probably in the top ten right now, but it's going to keep getting better. And I think you want to you want to harness that talent and give it a chance to thrive instead of hold it back. And I think a, a, a higher level coach like like the ones at the absolute pinnacle of soccer right now would do a better job. And to me, that just feels pretty logical. Joe, can I can I modify the question a little bit? Because when we're talking about Pepper Klopp, uh, you know, literally two of the best coaches in the world, um, then it's a little easier to I mean to assume. I know it's a different ball game to go to the international side than to be working for Liverpool or Man City. Uh, but what if what if you just took it to, I mean, do you think it's possible that there are other coaches who would be very attainable for the U.S. that could that could essentially be a net positive for the U.S. men's national team? Like, does Greg Vanny come in and potentially make us 10% better over the course yeah, of six months? Yeah, I mean, months? you made my life, my life really easy with that question. Potentially, sure, right? And this is this is where I run out of answers, right? I don't know if Greg Berhalter was ever the right person for this job. I'm not saying he wasn't, but, I mean, there are other people that were interviewed that maybe could have done a better job, or, or maybe the U.S. soccer didn't interview enough folks. I think that's been a criticism that's been that's been levied against these, these decision makers. I don't know what the cutoff is for the level of coach that would have better success with this group. Maybe Greg Berhalter and Greg Vanny and Peter Vermees and Bob Bradley, maybe they're all in the same tier. I don't know, and I don't really know how we would figure that out besides giving them all an equal amount of time in the exact... In, in each individual different timelines to determine that, and that's obviously not possible. I do think there are coaches out there that probably were attainable to one degree or another, or are now, that could do a better job with this group, but I, I don't know who they are or how we'd tell if they could do a better job. Joe, who would be 
is there a coach in Major League Soccer? Because I, I, I do, if we're sticking with the idea of like an American to coach the U.S. national team, and I do think historically, I think every World Cup has been won by a team managed by like a coach from their country. I think that tends to be a, a successful pattern for whatever reason. If we were going to go with an American manager who has a more like let them play style of isn't overcomplicating, is setting the team up well and then getting the best out of them like is it Brian Schmetzer I know that a lot of people don't necessarily rate him as a like tactical manager but I'm wondering who would you have be that or who do you think is that person it's Bruce Arena for sure I mean he's the he's the classic never mind play don't talk to me about formations those don't matter and he's not entirely wrong about some of those things but in my view obviously there's a lot of different ways to look at soccer then let's move it a little bit away from Bruce Arena (laughs) who has slightly more like okay but I do need you to make this run at this moment like who has maybe a a little bit more hands-on approach uh, I don't know a lot about mm-hmm. how these coaches go about their daily business, but Brian Schmetzer is probably not a bad shout in that regard. I think he's a very good coach and good at a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's a, really a tactician in my sense of the word or how I would choose to use that word. So he could be an option. I, I think Greg Vanny is a good coach. I think Bob Bradley is a good coach. I think Jim Curtin has a lot of good qualities about him as well. So there are talented American coaches out there I don't know that any of them are necessarily in this next level you know somewhere in between Klopp and Pep and Greg Berhalter right I'm not sure that they're in between those coaches I think they they could very likely be on the same level to what the U.S. Mm -hmm. is operating under right now because I do and 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 well yeah I do think that it's it's almost impossible to go from managing a club of the caliber of Man City or Liverpool and the way those two manage those clubs and many many other managers like that, where it's day in and day out, you're, you're sort of going home and watching film, you're waking up and going in and like conducting training and talking to players about what they need to do, and you, and you don't have that same amount of time. And I do buy into the idea that you have to simplify things and you have limited time constraints, you have to deal with players being injured or players being unavailable for selection, and so you have to be able to really effectively communicate what you want your team to do in fairly straightforward terms. And I think that maybe is where Berhalter sometimes gets tripped up. I'm going to assume that Pep Guardiola can communicate ideas about tactics and movement uh, pretty effectively, but we haven't seen him do it at international level, and I'm sure he can if that's the challenge he wants. The, The person that I think of as being sort of ticking a lot of boxes, including that maybe he's coming to the end of wanting the rigors of club management, would be somebody like Carlo Ancelotti. I doubt he ever takes over the U.S. national team, but he's, by all accounts, one who I think puts his players in the best position for them to play like uh, a way that makes sense for them, that puts them in comfortable spots and, and gets results. And I think that does sort of lend itself to international management, but doesn't really have any familiarity with the United States from a coaching capacity. So I don't know if that would quite work. But I think it is probably somebody who is still trying to play proactive, interesting soccer and and changing ideas and putting the team in new positions to do different things, but also fundamentally can say, we're doing this, here's what you need to do, don't do that, do do this, okay, go win. And then they do. And I think that was Bruce Arena for a while. I don't think it, 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 it was in 2017. I don't think it should be again for the national team. But I think whoever can do that, I wouldn't uh, hate being the next coach. And, and is that going to get us to the World Cup semis? I, I'm taking it back to Farm Nice's yeah. question a little bit. That's uh, true. Like, I've definitely never thought that we were going to get to the World Cup semis. Like, I'm I'm with Joe. Uh, I'm I'm like, we have enough talent where if we get a good draw and things bounce our way, we're we can get out of our group at the World Cup. Like, that's that's always sort of just my hope for any World Cup because of it's a three game crapshoot. 
uh, to yeah, an extent. Yeah, that's totally fair, man. Uh, and like even going back to the very first question, when you all, I think y'all were talking about Ricardo Pepe and like, is he past the point of a like a smaller club, a feeder club buying him? I'm not. I'm not sure he is. But I bring that up just to say that like that is the conversation we're having. Whereas that's not the conversation Spain is having or Germany or England. Like so, yeah, I think that's a very fair point that. We still don't have the depth of talent across the board, uh, and and if one player gets injured, if Tyler Adams isn't there, not quite sure what we do. Uh, I would have said the same of John Brooks before this past window. Now, less concerned about if John Brooks gets injured, but I think, yeah, the the, the lack of depth across the board, the lack of like tech, technical and tactical expertise across the board is probably the major limitation as opposed to the coaching. Yeah. Uh, one one other kind of interesting thing when we were listing off, you know, the MLS coaches, uh, Robin Frazier is another yeah. one who's been doing a yeah, lot that's a good one. with – with a little, and and what's interesting, especially about that, is because famously his uh, the the person who left the job maybe two coaches before Frazier uh, very famously said, "I'm dealing with bottom <laughs> level players here," uh, and Robin Frazier is now winning with those players, while the coach who said that is now the assistant coach of the oh U.S. Men's gosh. National Team. <laughs> it's Anthony Hudson. I don't know if everyone's as dialed in, but Anthony Hudson went from Colorado to being fired after saying, "I can't win with these players." got the U-20 job when the U-20s didn't happen, eventually just inertiaed his way into the U.S. men's national team coaching staff, which is sort of just another one of those things where you just throw your hands up like, are we even are we even really trying uh, with some of these decisions? Or do you literally just say, here's what we found. We found this in the couch cushions. He's on the staff now. Anthony, Anthony Hudson's just like three quarters and a dime that's sitting in, your, in between Greg's couch cushions. <laughs> I don't even want to laugh about it right now. It's making me angry just thinking about it. <laughs> I'm 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 honestly thinking about like the you know you guys t- are talking about uh, like these corporate structures of like what how do we I'm I, I'm sorry it was actually Bob, I was listening to Bobby Warshaw talk to Greg Berhalter about like the corporate mindset uh, of coaches and it's like okay so you identified a need you must have identified a need for an assistant coach in the staff like what was the process to then say Anthony Hudson is definitely the right guy for this like what went into that uh, those discussions. I've, I've totally well, he, cut, he cut a big he took a big piece of paper and he cut out a, a shape a silhouette that sh- fit Anthony Hudson and then whoever walked through it that was the person he hired yeah it's a fair question like how does Jason Christ continue to get uh, gigs or how did he continue to get gigs like yes I think the approach to the hiring process and who they bring in has always been a bit of a head scratcher from a U.S. perspective. I think Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride just sat around and, and decided what they needed was more inflammatory comments in the press, and so Anthony Hudson fit that bill. It's that simple, guys. I do, I do think, to go back to the question again, I do think the, um, this idea that there's a sense in our collective criticism that we should be dominating the region and challenging for World Cup semis is, a, is an exaggeration of what I perceive to be our collective criticism of Berhalter. Um, I think... I just want the team to look like good and on the same page. And, you know, you know, sometimes results go your way. Sometimes they don't, but anybody who watched the first five halves of the last qualifying window and says that we looked good is lying straight to your face. So that's how I look at it. All right. So then you have to combine it with Bob Morocco and say, how much of it is it on the coach and how much is on the players? And I do think a significant amount is on the coach. And I basically just now think of it that way is that our coach has, uh, limitations that could hold us back in games and so far I think has so it's just like any other player on the field like oh Mark McKenzie might make a mistake Greg Berhalter might make a mistake with his lineup uh, and we'll have to overcome that mistake to get to get a result yeah and and finally going back to the question uh, <laughs> I, I hope that we qualify for the World Cup 
I'm less concerned about making the semis. I, I really, like, that is where I am. I don't think the U.S. should be, like, definitely easily breezing to the semifinals. I, I think this is a team that is, as we've already seen, not guaranteed to, to even qualify out of CONCACAF. I still think they will, but I think, like, the, that is where my expectations are, is how do you put a team together that convincingly wins enough games to make us qualify, and then we can worry about that next step. Yeah. My crying daughter disagree, or agrees, by the way. Or disagrees. I'm not really sure which one it is. The children are weeping we've been talking for I know. so long. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys, for, uh, for doing this. It's a, a lot of fun for us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. This was tons of fun, and if we don't do it again, I'll be sad. Not as uh, sad as I, Taylor's crying child right now, yeah, exactly. but still sad. <laughs> Uh, And I agree. It was really nice to get to chat with you all. And really, I just enjoy getting to talk out some U.S. national team stuff in a uh, with with other people who aren't uh, me and Joe having the same conversations that we always have. (laughs) So uh, when we end up talking about romantic comedies and random other stuff, uh, I'm into it. Yeah, let's do it again. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you.